This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Clavio. Clavio helps brands build relationships across any distance, delivering email marketing moments your customers will appreciate, remember, and share in good times and bad. And since it's all driven by real-time e-commerce data, you can make sure every interaction feels more personal. When you have a 360-degree view of a customer, the growth possibilities are endless. Visit clavio.com slash duct tape to schedule a demo. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash duct tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Steve Blank. He's recognized for developing the customer development method that launched the lean startup movement. He's also an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Stanford, lectures at UC Berkeley, and is a senior fellow at Columbia University. So in addition to writing a number of books, including The Startup Owner's Manual, The Step-by-Step Guide for Building a Great Company, he also spends a lot of time in classrooms. So Steve, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. So you certainly won't remember this. We met very briefly about 12 well, maybe more like eight years ago. And it was actually, the reason I really remember it, uh, besides the fact that I was honored to meet you, was that the Startup Owner's Manual had literally just came, come out. You were um, unboxing it um, at an event uh, at Dell that I was also speaking at. I don't, do you even remember that? The event? I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it was kind of fun because I had uh, I'd written a couple books by then uh, at that point, and uh, so it was really fun seeing another author um, you know, be very excited about seeing the book for the first time. <laughs> All right, so you have, I, I actually, a couple of weeks ago, had a, you're a, a colleague, Alex Osterwalder, on the show, and I know that, that you spent a lot of time uh, in the you know, business model generation world, uh, customer discovery world, uh, with him. Um, we're recording this in the end of April, uh, I suspect a lot of people are really scrambling with business models. Are you are you seeing a, a sort of resurgence of that idea of the business model because so many people have, you know, f- maybe are feeling that their model is uh, failing them? Yeah, I think that's an understatement. Uh, I think we're in a mass extinction event for uh, for the economy, yeah. much like uh, happened in the year 2000, in fact, in 1987, which I lived through as a younger entrepreneur and, you know, unfortunately might, uh, some people are saying could be as bad as the crash of 29 to, to 39, but uh, at a minimum, uh, this is going to wipe out a, a set of categories, change categories, and importantly have uh, opened up new e- niches and ecosystems and types of businesses for new entrants and for companies that manage to be agile and adroit. Yeah, isn't that the interesting thing about this type of uh, event is that there certainly will be winners and losers. I mean, we're already seeing it to some extent with, you know, things that are very much more in demand, you know, right now, all the home delivery services, for example. Uh, But do you do you see some of those kind of shifts that are maybe created, you know, out of necessity? Do you do you see that behavior sticking around so that it's not just while we're in you know shelter? Sure. I, I think, um, you know, there's probably a billion people who have been exposed to video teleconferencing and, uh, um, and online education and, uh, and being able to socialize uh, remotely as well. 
some of those behaviors are going to stick because we found out for some parts of uh, what we used to do in person actually uh, could be done remotely. And I think it's also an education about what doesn't work well, um, at least with the current generation of video apps. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, one area. Um, I think, um, I also think individuals, in fact, when I've been counseling to students who were in school and, um, and those early in their career, is, you know, out of a crisis is an opportunity, not just for what business model you can pivot to, but actually reflection about whether this is the career you want to spend your life, the rest of the life doing. Is e-commerce really the most exciting thing you could be doing, for example? Or are there other opportunities in healthcare and, and life sciences, therapeutics, devices, diagnostics? Um, or, you know, remote learning? Is there some kind of educational thing? So it's also a time to reflect about um, are these the, the jobs you want to continue in? Usually when we're doing a job and have a career, your kind of head is down executing on a, on a track. It's these times you get to think. And then back to your point, it's also the time where businesses get to think. Well, we've always been in this market or we've been in this segment. In, in some cases, the market is deciding for you, for better or worse, what business you're in. But it also uh, involves some uh, opportunities now about do we want to pivot it to some, something else, given the resources we have. And Oscar Wilder's Canvas, the business model canvas, and if you're in the government or a nonprofit, a mission model canvas, kind of is a roadmap to allow you to do that. Um, also, Mark Gruber's work uh, uh, about where to play is also an interesting front-end tool to figure out what markets to play in. Uh, but but the, the key point is, you know, in this um, crisis, as a CEO of a company or an exec, if you don't act, the market will act for you, um, and that's not a good place to be. Would you would you go as far as saying that the inevitable sort of just got sped up? I mean, some some models that were just kind of hanging on because people were used to them, you know, maybe will go away, while other new models might actually come come to. Play. I, I guess I would violently object. <laughs> Is that no? Um, it's a mass extinction event, which and the thing and the thing I'm trying to make there is, no, the dinosaurs would have continued to evolve into maybe some other forms and maybe start using tools. But when that asteroid hit, it wasn't an evolution. It was a new niches opened up and new thing, and the leaders just got killed off and whatever. And so I just want to point out, this is not more of the same, but faster. This is at least in my mind, entire segments, you know, like sports and, and theater and, you know, and in-person entertainment and the obvious travel and, you know, um, airlines and whatever, hotels are all going to be transformed. Not all of them will go out of business, but, you know, people are not, especially if you're over 60 or 65, you're not showing up in a venue with 50 people for a while, not until there's a vaccine. Um, and so this just means there are new opportunities. It also means, again, if you're in that business or, or you know, think about who ate in high-end restaurants. I mean, the demographics might not be great for, for anybody who was expecting that, though it might be great for fast casual and takeout. Would you say there's a, um, a, a, a single attribute that help, has helped some companies survive this? Now, obviously, like you said, 
if you were in certain industries, it didn't matter what you were doing. You know, you you lost all your business. Um, but were there attributes to companies that that allowed them to actually uh, that that you believe you know will allow them to come out of this, uh, assuming there is some sort of return to you know the new abnormal? Yeah, there are two pieces. I, I I'd say one is dumb luck. You know, and it's always always uh, nice to be lucky. But the other is uh, the ability to operate on. Uh, on insufficient data quickly. And what I mean by that is if you're sitting around waiting for enough data, um, you're screwed. Um, and if you're just sitting around waiting period, it's going to happen to you. Or if you've panicked and, you know, either shut your business down completely or did something else. I mean, so there's kind of a spectrum of between complacency and, and panic. And that is just rapid assessment of like, What's going on in the economy? What's going on in my market? What's going on with my customers? And if you're selling to other businesses, what's going on with their customers? Because it, it might not, that ripple effect might not have hit yet, but it will. You know. And then an internal assessment very rapidly. What's our burn rate? What used to be fixed costs are no longer fixed. What can we change? Any sources of external income? The government's PPP program and other, other payroll protection programs. Um, and then what are the business model pivots I could do and what are the what's the lifeboat strategy for keeping my company alive in terms of cutting down burn rate, making sure we have enough cash um, and then figuring out what we want to have in that uh, lifeboat when recovery does come because it will come. It's just like the question is when well, we want to make sure we didn't throw out the most important things that will either allow us to continue to grow back or continue to lead. Uh, when it's over. So the, the sum of this is that the, the formula is pretty simple. Survival equals uh, um, speed times uh, assessment times the speed that you make cuts and changes. Um, and and what's been unfair to every CEO of companies large and small is you don't train for this. Your MBA or, or business experience or anything doesn't train you for the fight. Um, it doesn't. You don't run battlefield drills in startups or or companies. You do if you happen to be in the pointy end of the spear of the army or, or marines. But that's not how we train executives. And so executives have been trained for market share and growth and profitability, etc. So this is going to separate out people who are actually great at being thoughtful and contemplative and collaborative are probably the people who are going to be closest to the extinction event. Because unless you're really lucky, you know, that tsunami is not going to wait for you to decide to get off the beach. Um, I mean, that's probably a, a bad but relevant analogy. Yeah. So I wonder if you have a view on uh, uh, on where venture capital will end up going. I mean, how how are you know, how are people that 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 maybe invested in companies and now have seen that kind of get blown up, uh, you know, viewing the world going forward? Well, if you think about it, um, not only do startups have to think about a lifeboat strategy and thinking about reallocation of capital and capital, you know, like saving cash and making sure they have enough runway, investors are doing the same. You know, what's different in this uh, uh, crash and downturn is uh, VCs have more money than they ever had. And so less so that they're going to run out of money, but more so it kind of changes the the game of where they want to put it. If you're a venture capitalist who's not only been supporting early stage ventures, but you have some 
really successful ones in the later stage that were doing great. And they're the most valuable things in your portfolio, but the bottom has dropped out of their markets. That's the ones you need to put all your cash in the support, i.e. Lyft, excuse me, uh, um, uh, Airbnb and uh, Lyft are two examples. Is that, um, or let's just take Airbnb, incredibly valuable, but didn't go public. So now they're in their, their customers have gone away. So now they're burning in infinite cash. If I'm an investor, I need to be supporting those guys. Or I bird a scooter company. That means that my time, energy, and dollars are not being spent on seed rounds and Series A. Um, there's another component that's a, a, that also says, look, I might be doing seed rounds over Zoom, writing small checks, but but there's almost it's almost criminal if I was a, a, a venture capitalist to be writing million dollar or ten million dollar checks over Zoom. You know, that, that's just a violation of my fiduciary responsibilities. So. Essentially, that kind of fundraising is kind of shut down unless they were already in the pipeline. And, and I'm not trying to make this black or white. I'm just suggesting that there are reasons why the, the money from investors to at least startups are going to change uh, dramatically. Angels might be writing small checks, but I would and I have been counseling uh, entrepreneurs who business model was predicated as an I'll, go, I'll get a seed round and. Then I'll meet some milestones and I'll get a series A based on, you know, user growth or something else. I think those days are over for, for a lot of markets. I think people are now going to want to see revenue and profitability. Remember those terms? I, I think when the recovery does come, it, for most markets, it's going to be, you know, show me your show me like something that is other than non-cash for for metrics. Does that make sense at all? I mean, and, and and none of this is black and white. It's just, I believe the rules are changing and they usually do in every crisis. The other thing we're seeing is typical bad behavior on a, on a, in, from, from some segment of investors, which in, in downturns give them the names of not venture capitalists, but vulture capitalists, you know, not only down rounds, but, you know, term sheets pulled out at the last minute. They're or renegotiating when you're basically almost out of cash. I mean, you know, the good news or bad news is, you know, entrepreneurs remember, and, uh, you know, those investors should understand that entrepreneurs remember. And so for another 20%, if they want to tr trash their reputation, you know, Twitter and, and blogs, like, communicate a lot further than they did in the, in the last uh, uh, crisis. So, uh, but they're, they're still, um, I'm on the, an investor in one where, Somebody's now just asked for five X liquidity preferences, and and since they're the only money available, the founders are going to have to take it. But um, but let me tell you, it's the last uh, time I'm ever going to suggest any of the hundreds of students I see every year go even near these folks. Um, but there are people like that out there. Good news is m most investors are are not that way. But you start to see those bad behaviors now. Uh, and, and as I said, this has ripple effects all the way up and down. Um, it's not that investing will stop and that start startups will stop. It's just going to be the the days of free money essentially are gone for a while. My prediction is, you know, at least a year, if not two. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, the growth marketing platform most recommended by other business leaders. In uncertain times, supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers is a strategy that will be appreciated, remembered, and shared. In good times and bad, 
Open and empathetic communication with your customers is key. Email is and always will be one of the best channels for delivering these communications. Visit Clavio.com slash duct tape to schedule a demo. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash duct tape. So I have actually run my business uh, distributed and virtual and actually had most of my client meetings you know, online for about a decade. Uh, but a whole lot of new people are coming on to that behavior and that technology. Uh, so, uh, you know, Zoom has almost become a, a verb, I think, uh, for, for a lot of people. You wrote an article recently about, you know, what you think is missing from it. And I think a lot of people, when they use these things as kind of Band-Aids, you know, you, you tolerate a lot of things. Um, but if, if it's going to become the standard for how most meetings are done, what do you what do you think needs to happen to that technology? Well, I think, um, you know, if you think about um, a, a normal meeting, let's just take a business meeting. You know, number one is uh, the meeting location matters. Are you meeting on the 47th floor boardroom with a great view? Or are you meeting in a tilt up in a, in a strip mall? Um, or if it's a social thing, are you meeting in a coffee shop? Uh, or are you sitting with other classmates? You know, if you're working for home, you really can't tell um, where the location or setting is. And so all these contextual clues about um, are just kind of homogenized. Um, the, the second part is, in a real world, you just don't teleport into a meeting. You miss the transitions as you enter a building, find the room and sit down. Um, and then the other piece, which, again, we take for granted, is in a business meeting, and even in social meetings as well, they all start with physical contact, like either a handshake or a hug. And there's something about that physical interaction that communicates trust and connection. And in business meetings, we follow that up with a formal ritual of exchanging business cards. And if you've been in Japan, you understand what a formal ritual. In the U.S., it's a little less formal, but there is there are preambles to establish a connection for the meeting that follows. And the next thing that's missing is, you know, when I walk into someone's office, I look on what's the walls, do they have awards, you know, what books do they have on their shelves, you know, any papers on their desk, um, and we'll scan the room, right? Our gaze will look around, and, and uh, if it's a conference, we'll see, or a classroom, we'll, we'll see who we're sitting next to, what they're wearing, carrying, reading. And when we do that in a group, we could see relationships between people and note who's deference to, and the hierarchy and side glances and other subtle cues. And we do this to build a context and make assumptions about personalities and social status and hierarchy. Um, the last part, and, and I'm almost done here, and the one that just blows me away are the amount of nonverbal cues that, that like, you don't even know you're getting and that Zoom just kind of, like, misses. Um, for the last 50 years, we've known about half of what how we communicate is through these nonverbal cues, which is a fancy word for we watch other people's hands, we follow their gestures, we look at the, their expressions on their faces. It's not just over the phone, it's like, oh, you know, did they roll their eyes or did they, they nod their head? Um, and we make, uh, we make assumptions about following their body language. And body language is a fancy word for, are they leaning forward when you say something because they're excited? Are they slouching? Are their arms crossed? You know, how do they sit, stand or sit? 
And it's, you know, not only following the cues of the speaker, but in a group meeting, you know, it's often the side glances and eye rolls and shrugs between our peers on our side and other participants in the other side of the meeting that offer nuance to how's it going. Um, so the sum of these is the background of every conversation. And there's one last piece that I don't know if we'll ever solve digitally. And there's, believe it or not, a ton of science that says in animals, including mammals and primates, like, you know, people close to us, that there's an exchange of odors and chemicals uh, and hormones called pheromones and just smells uh, that signal social status, danger, etc. And there's some belief that that's also going on in a meeting. Now, the sum of all this is that if you're in sales, you might notice that, like, it's a lot harder to close big ticket items, uh, you know, over conferencing. It, it turns out, by the way, Zoom is great if you're in sales for first level meetings and, and, uh, and lead gen, etc. But when you're missing 50% of what makes great salespeople for big ticket items, this turns winners into losers. It, you know, it turns uh, complex deals into into like no closed deals and, uh, you know, easy deals into hard deals. Uh, I was going to say, I don't disagree with that at all. But if that's the only uh, option available because, you know, this goes on forever, won't we won't we adapt and replace that behavior or or somebody even suggest no. is that kind of generational <laughs> behavior even? No. I don't think so. I think what will happen and what has happened, and, and this is not a Zoom, a, a, a disc to Zoom or Skype or whatever, right. is that the first generation of all these video conferencing apps were developed by technologists who were just trying to solve the hardest effing problem of, let me put multiple people on the screen with a limited bandwidth and not crash. <laughs> and by the way, we've done a pretty good job. So the, that is a pretty good job in solving the, the technical problems. But these companies aren't run, nor were they founded by psychologists and cognitive researchers. And so what I think is going to happen is no, explicitly, 100%, my belief is, belief is no, we're not going to adopt, uh, adapt to that. What will happen is there will be a next generation of apps with facial recognition and emotion detection and analytic software that measure speech patterns and facial cues that are actually giving us augmented um, reality overlays when we're looking at just a face and telling us here are the cues that we could pick up from video that you normally would subconsciously pick up, we're computing for you. Um, so I think we're gonna see much, much, much better, uh, certainly for business. I mean, wouldn't you pay, you know, like a lot for something that increases your close rate by 25% over video? I would, in a second. So, so I guess I'm trying to answer the question is no, uh, you know, um, the, the, what we're seeing is, generation one barely of how to communicate with people um, electronically, but but the real winners in the long term are the ones who are going to realize how do we capture that that lost portion of how human beings communicate. And that's going to require more than people having conversations about bandwidth and resolution and number of you know screens that we could show at the same time well it's interesting because um you know i think you're absolutely right a lot when all we needed was the occasional meeting but we knew we were going to get together you know yeah. to close the deal that technology worked but you've already seen uh for example zoom uh because of just the rush to people using it you've already seen them uh, iterate a bunch 
I, I think lately, you know, they're adding reactions, they're adding breakout rooms, they're adding, you know, they're trying. I think they're trying to address more of what you're talking about. But, um, but, but the cameras do 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 you think the cameras will ever come with noses? Is that is that where we're headed? No, I think you know. Right now, all the all the video conferencing uh, apps are trying to hold on to surfing in a tsunami. I mean, you know, they are the luckiest folks on the on the face of the earth. And you know, number one, they're solving security issues, which are major. Um, and they're all working hard to do that. I mean, this is not that they have a bad first generation product. I, I guess my point is, is that they'll be second generation, just like Zoom and, and you know, obsoleted the things that came before them. And, you know, there's, you just look through back through the history of what were we using five years ago and, and they look like toys compared to how sophisticated and how parsimonious with bandwidth these video apps are. I'm just pointing out we're going to there'll be another generation of apps that will take advantage of this that actually realize what conversations about and that that doing just straight video will be more than sufficient. As as I pointed out, it's not like it's not good for anything. It's great to to casually catch up for with a family. It's it's great to, you know, casually do lead gen or, or first level meetings. Sure. You could save a whole bunch of plane trips. But but I think it's the more sophisticated things that we're going to see next generation apps. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 to that point, though, I wonder if some level of behavior, like there were people that didn't do first level meetings, you know, using video that now right. are going to realize, hey, we can do that just as effectively. Right. And so I think that beha behavior is going right. to stick. Yeah, I, I think right there, there goes 10 percent of business travel. Right. So if I was airlines, I would like. I would buy Zoom and try to put it out of business. I mean, I mean, seriously, I think it's, as I said, there's a hierarchy of, and, and I don't mean to focus this on business to business only, but I, I think there's a hierarchy of communications we've, we've now kind of understood, some of which can be completely offloaded to like, why am I getting on a plane to have a meet and greet? You know, there's no, why should I even get in a car to go do that? Zoom is just fine. But have serious, you know, like you need to touch a product or feel it or, gee, I'm a great salesperson. And I think the other thing it's going to it's going to also do is there might be a category of people who are great Zoom salespeople for some uh, some portion of, of products, though I still don't think it will replace great face to face stuff. But we're going to be forced to to do conferencing for a lot of things that we never even thought of. I mean. In-person trade shows, I don't think we're getting 100,000 people together in the next CES unless there's a, a vaccine. Um, and so a lot of things are going to have to go online. My friend Alexander Osterwalder is taking his master classes all online, but he's changing the, the model of how the classes are taught. So it's going to make us kind of change the configuration of, of uh, not, not just simply repurposing the in-person events, but actually figuring out what works best with the tools we have. You know, I want to remind folks when um, when television first came out, people thought it was theater, right? And, you know, oh, we'll just stage a play and that's entertainment. Before they figured out that the new technology allowed you to have multiple cameras and multiple views and do things that weren't just emulation of a single person sitting in a fixed seat in a theater with cameras and television, you could make more interesting shots. Um, same was true when the movies came out. It was like fixed camera, fixed location. I, I think we're, we're kind of recapitulating kind of that that discovery of 
oh, the tech allows us to do a little more than just recapitulating a trade show or a conference or something else. Yeah, how about education <laughs> in general, the whole category? Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm now teaching my Stanford class online, our Hacking for Defense class and our Lean Launchpad classes. Um, and um, the good news is uh, the class requires our students to get out of the building and talk to 10 to 15 customers a week. And surprisingly, uh, first-level customer discovery is easier, uh, I think, uh, with high-resolution video than it is in person now. Because most people are at home and have a little more time on their hands and will take a call. Um, but number two, it, it makes the communication of content harder because you're missing all that stuff that great educators do is not only how they communicate, but how they pick up whether students are learning or not. And so for educators, this is difficult as well. I think you'll see another generation of online education products in the same way as how do I engage students? So, for example, the other thing is we decided to change the format of the class and have breakout rooms and breakout sessions. Again, another nice feature that Zoom added is that we could still have them as part of the class, but in a physical different room as they're working on different projects. Um, so, yeah, I think education is changing uh, dramatically as well. Though I, I got to tell you, the most parents I talked to with kids at home going, no, I hope I hope we never go back to online education because they're climbing the effing walls. Um, but it is interesting, though, because now, I mean, a lot of universities were moving a percentage of, you know, this direction. But now you've got you, you've got kindergartners that are doing this now. You know, I mean, so it's uh, um, the long standing, long lasting impact uh, on education, I think, will be interesting. Yep. And I think you're finding that I, I, I think you are going to find that there are students that thrive in this environment that don't thrive in the classroom. Right. And, and you know, we've known for a while that um, different people learn via different modalities, right? So people are, are great online and just give me the material and I could zoom through that, excuse the pun. And some people just really need that in-person interactive stuff because they ask lots of questions or they could, you know, nudge their friend next to them and say, well, what does that mean? And, and so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think this is a kind of forcing us all to go to one one mode, and um, um, not particularly great for those who who can't learn that way. Well, Steve, this has been great. We could I could talk about this for a long time. Um, unfortunately, I'm uh, um, got got to wrap up our normal length of show. I really appreciate you stopping by and taking a little time. And uh, you want to share where uh, people might be able to get in touch with you, or at least find out about your work and your books. Yeah, so uh, more information than you ever wanted to know about innovation, entrepreneurship, uh, uh, and some uh, tech issues at steveblank.com. That's Steve, B-L-A-N-K.com. And, uh, and just feel free to subscribe to the, to the blog post. Well, thanks for stopping by the podcast, and hopefully we'll uh, run into you again when we're all back out there on the road again someday. Well, thanks for having me, John. This was great.